Hello, and welcome to the Stanford SciCast. I'm Jack Ryan. And I'm Foster Birnbaum. This week, we will be exploring a decades-old problem in biology that just might revolutionize research and medicine. So, Foster, what is this question that you claim is so important? It's known as the protein design problem. And to understand what that means, we need to discuss what a protein is and why a protein structure is important. Proteins are made up of amino acids, which are like Lego building blocks. There are different types of blocks with different properties. And just like how the arrangement of the blocks determines the properties of the Lego structure, the arrangement of the amino acids determines the properties of the proteins. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Another important concept with protein structure is the different levels of the structure. Right. There is primary structure, secondary structure, tertiary structure, and quaternary structure. These different levels of structure refer to different levels of complexity. And to think about these levels, I like to think about the example of beads on a string. Oh, that's interesting. Let me guess. The beads represent different amino acids, just like the Lego blocks did before? Yeah, exactly. And the string represents the backbone of the protein. That's the same regardless of which amino acid or bead is present at a specific location. And on this string, the amino acids or beads are organized in a line. And that represents the primary protein structure. It's the linear order of the amino acids on the backbone of the protein. And the secondary structure would then be how the backbone folds into certain shapes. To use the beads on a string analogy, different secondary structures would be represented by folding the string into a loop or a twist or something like that. Yep, and proteins have certain secondary structures that are preferred. The two major ones are alpha helices, which look like a water slide. Oh, like one of the ones that twists around and around as you go down? Exactly. And the other one is beta sheets, which look like railway tracks with two parallel lines of amino acids next to each other. So that's the secondary structure, how the backbone folds. But what about the tertiary structure? Can we keep going with the beads on a string analogy? Well, here's where I think we'll start to break down. The tertiary structure is how the different amino acids interact with each other. And these interactions are typically through structures called side chains. The side chains are different on each amino acid. You could think of it, maybe we can go back to the beads on a string analogy. You can think of the different types of beads, red bead, a blue bead. Uh, and what that means in terms of amino acids is instead of a different color, it's a different side chain. And those different side chains have different properties. And because of those different properties, they fold the protein into a very complex three-dimensional structure. The tertiary structure is where the folding starts to get really complicated. There are 20 common amino acids, and proteins can have thousands of these amino acids. This means there are a lot of possible ways these amino acids can interact with each other, each of which produces a slightly different tertiary structure. And there is still one more level of structure, quaternary structure. This structure describes how different tertiary structures fit together. Going back to the beads on a string analogy, if the tertiary structure describes how one string gets all twisted and folded up, the quaternary structure describes how different clumps of strings interact. 
And in terms of proteins, these tertiary structures are called domains. One final point on protein structure is that for a while, researchers knew that proteins had this complex structure, but they didn't know how proteins actually folded from their initial linear sequence into this final complicated structure. In the 1950s, researchers figured out that all of the information needed to fold a protein is encoded in its sequence. In other words, on its own, a protein that is newly produced will spontaneously fold, perhaps with the help of the cell in some small regard. To recap, there are four levels of protein structure, ranging from the linear arrangement of the amino acids to how the backbone and side chains interact to form a 3D structure. This is important because the 3D structure of the protein determines what the protein can do. For example, the reason why you've probably heard a lot about the COVID-19 spike protein is that it has a structure that makes it bind very tightly to human cells, which then allows the virus to enter the cell. And this brings us to the idea of protein design and to a related problem, which is known as protein structure prediction. Let's actually start with that other problem, protein structure prediction. The idea here is that because all of the information on how to fold the protein is encoded in the sequence of amino acids, we should be able to predict a structure from a sequence. And the ability to do so computationally would represent a major advancement. Currently, the way researchers figure out a protein structure is through imaging, primarily X-ray crystallography. The procedure is complicated and involves extremely low temperatures and a lot of math, but the result is what is known as a crystal structure of the protein. While X-ray crystallography and other experimental approaches to solving protein structures are amazing tools, they are not perfect. They take a significant amount of time and do not work for every protein. So being able to computationally predict the structure from the sequence would greatly benefit researchers, which is why the protein structure prediction problem is so important. The protein design problem, meanwhile, is often called the inverse of the protein structure prediction problem. The idea behind it is this. What if researchers could design a protein with a structure to do whatever they wanted? Designing a protein means choosing a sequence of amino acids. Well, if they could do that, then they could develop biosensing molecules to help diagnose diseases, better drugs to fight cancer, and more effective vaccines to combat infectious diseases like COVID-19 and potentially develop more infectious diseases too. Yeah, we'll get back to that later. The point is that the ability to design a protein with a specific shape that accomplishes a specific function would have a huge scientific impact. Because of this, protein design has been tantalizing researchers with the potential to revolutionize medicine since the 1940s. By the 1980s, researchers were hopeful that protein design would soon be possible. However, Despite many significant advancements in the field, 40 years later, the general solution remains elusive. Right. And remember that the full protein structure is encoded in the linear sequence of amino acids. The primary structure, or linear sequence of beads. So the protein design problem boils down to selecting the right sequence. However, the number of possible sequences is vast. Too vast to search one by one, to find the one that best folds into the desired structure. To give you an idea, 
let's say we want to design a relatively small protein that we want to contain 100 amino acids. The number of possible sequences is thus 20 to the 100 power. There are 20 amino acid possibilities at each position and 100 positions to fill. That is far, far more than the number of atoms in the universe. To search through these possibilities, researchers can build and test different proteins in the lab, which is very accurate, but also time intensive and unlikely to result in really novel proteins. The alternative approach is to use computers to model how the sequences would fold and behave. This is potentially much faster, but the difficulty is in making the predictions accurate. For the past two decades or so, the main computational approach has been the Rosetta framework developed by Professor David Baker at the University of Washington. This framework is based around using knowledge of existing protein structures and simulating the physical interactions between amino acid side chains. For the existing structures, Rosetta uses the about 170,000 proteins with solved crystal structure sequences from X-ray crystallography to predict which sequence chunks of around nine or so amino acids will correspond to a desired structure. And then it uses physical simulations of how the different atoms interact to see what happens when all of these chunks are combined and ultimately to check whether the resulting protein really is close to the desired structure. Then the algorithm can change the sequence to try and get better and then predict again, etc. And that methodology has been leading the field for the past 20 years, and it can do really well for certain proteins, especially ones that are similar to those that we already have sequences and structures for. The problem is that the algorithm is still not that great at the general problem of give me any random structure, what is a sequence that results in that structure? Exactly. That is because although we know the sequences and structures of about 170,000 proteins, researchers think there are 200 million proteins across all organisms. And there are an even greater number of proteins that do not exist in nature at all, but still might be incredibly useful for us. As a result, while protein design using Rosetta was a big advancement when it was first developed, we've not really come close to truly solving the protein design problem or, for that matter, the related protein structure prediction problem. That is, until a few years ago, when Google's DeepMind team introduced AlphaFold, a deep learning algorithm that blew the Rosetta-based approaches out of the water in the biannual competition for protein structure prediction called CASP. We will discuss AlphaFold in more detail later. For now, Let's describe deep learning and why researchers thought to apply it to protein structure prediction and, as you will see, to protein design. Deep learning is complicated. A very simple description would be that deep learning algorithms seek to approximate an unknown function using some examples of inputs to the function and their known outputs. For example, maybe you have some data of points on an xy plane. And the first point is at the origin, 0, 0. The next point to the right is up 1. And the next point to the right again is down 1, back on the x-axis. 
And the next point to the right is down one again below the x-axis. And the next point is back on the x-axis, etc. When we look at those points, we can connect them in our minds to form a wave from left to right going up and down. When we train deep learning algorithms, we are training them to do exactly that. Look at the data, and predict an underlying function explaining the data. Another way to think about it is that deep learning algorithms are really good at finding patterns in huge amounts of data. That makes them perfect for use on protein design and protein structure prediction. If we can use deep learning algorithms to find the underlying principles of why a certain amino acid chain folds in a certain way, then we can leverage those principles to understand how novel proteins fold and what sequences are needed to produce such novel proteins. To learn more about the application of deep learning to protein design and protein structure prediction, we interviewed Professor Posu Huang, whose lab in Stanford's Department of Bioengineering focuses on protein design. That interview and more coming up after the break. So what is the most uh, exciting application or function of the, the proteins that we can design? Well, I guess the uh, sky is the limit. It, or if you're limiting to proteins that we can currently design, then uh, it's not too much. But, but, but you know, having said that, there are uh, many, many other things that protein can, design can do. Your entire body, right, biology, is essentially powered by proteins. So, so the sky really is the limit. Like if you have the ability to arbitrarily make any protein that you want, given you have this deep understanding of the chemical structure or like the uh, functional uh, catalysis, then, then you could essentially recreate biology. Uh, for example, uh, my lab is developing some uh, uh, cancer immunotherapy based on design proteins. And also people have been attempting to create enzymes and those could potentially have industrial applications. One thing you, you mentioned at the beginning there was that we, we don't currently have the ability to make the, the proteins of our dreams. So what are the, the major challenges that, that we need to overcome in, in order to develop these new you know, therapies and enzymes that, that you've been talking about? Generally, if you want to model like the, the planets uh, you know, orbiting around each other, those are macroscopic things that you can actually create very elegant equations or models to describe them. But when it comes to atomistic simulations, there's uh, this chaotic uh, connections and, and, and uh, essentially there's no beautiful equation that describes these things, even though those physical principles still underlie the, the functions of proteins. But what you have to manipulate in order to create this function, the, the level of complexity that you have to address is not as straightforward as like, you know, building a, a Newton's equation, for example. Additionally, a lot of it is that when you have a chemical reaction, we may not even understand the chemical reaction well enough to create the, the reaction pathway. So how do you actually make a protein to do that? So, so, so I guess in a nutshell, I think the limitation, you know, first of all, is this complexity, like 
problem with the complexity. And then the second thing is like, how deeply do we actually understand the problem? Okay, yeah, I mean, it seems like there, there's definitely work to work to do. It, it, you know, in, in your view, how does computation play into our ability to overcome these these challenges? How are people using computation either to, you know, get a better understanding of these complex systems or or model them? Computation is absolutely essential uh, in terms of protein design because you have to manipulate the structure. Essentially, there's no other way of doing it uh, other than simulating it on a computer. So. Um, the, the tools that, that has um, made a real difference really has been the, the, the uh, reduction of the computational cost, actually. Because uh, if you take a step back and think about what are the, the uh, sort of type of optimization that you have to implement in order to solve this problem, uh, at least historically, it has been that uh, people have to run Monte Carlo simulation and, and, and actually just to approximate some, some solution. And depending on the size of the problem, it's like these type of thing really demands a lot of computational uh, power. So those are the, that, that's how you know, computing is so important in, in this uh, area. You, you, you mentioned uh, this, this specific approach, the, the sort of Monte Carlo simulation. Could you explain what that is and, and why it's been so, so key? One simple example where you can employ this Monte, type of, Monte Carlo type of simulation is say if you have a wedding banquet and you want to decide who sits next to you, right? You know, there are some constraints that certain people like each other and certain people don't like each other, but then you have to place them all around the tables. So uh, a Monte Carlo uh, simulation is something that, that can get at a uh, solution to, to this problem and is uh, somewhat uh, random in, in the confirmation, but it will try to follow the, the constraints that you you placed and then uh, try to configure it so that so that you can get some sort of approximation of a good solution. Considering that like computation is such is such an important part of the protein design problem, and there's been the rise of deep learning in the past number of years. Doing our research for this topic, we learned about AlphaFold, which came out a few months ago. How surprising was AlphaFold, um, and how significant were the the results? Yeah, no, that's that's a very good question. So um, AlphaFold specifically tackles this problem called fold prediction. Uh, the, the type of problem AlphaFold wants to tackle is uh, say that we now have all these uh, genomic data, right? You have a lot of DNA sequences that are available, then uh, you can try to predict their structure and maybe you can use that to say what the function might be. And, and for example, a very good example is that they um, predicted the, the spike protein on the coronavirus uh, when the pandemic uh, first started. And that's before the experimental structures are available. And you can already use this type of algorithm to try to get a sense of what the structure might look like. And then you can use other methods to design uh, inhibitors, for, for example. And, and coming back to like the, the broader sense of what deep learning could potentially have an impact in this area, either in the protein folding area or the, the protein design area. And, the, and, and this answer is definitely, you, know, you can already see that uh, the alpha fold two is uh, it's already making an impact, and and I I would say that when they came out with this uh, accurate predictions, people are really surprised because they already did pretty well in the previous round uh, about five years ago, and uh, but but then the the new alpha fold two essentially blew everyone out of water. Whereas for protein design, the design area moves very very slowly because uh, to even just to let these deep learning neural network models to understand three-dimensional structure is somewhat difficult. 
my lab uh, and other labs, we've been working very hard on this problem. And, and uh, just because of the complexity and you, know, you have to keep track of uh, all the information coming from the three-dimensional structure. Um, but, but of course, when I mentioned that there's a difficulty in handling this type of three-dimensional structures, this similar kind of problem also exists in the protein uh, full prediction area, right? So AlphaFold was able to get sequences and then you actually can build a three-dimensional model for you. So they do have some shared uh, uh, overlap in, in the type of problem that, that these algorithms will have to handle. And, and I do think that they will grow hand in hand. Uh, and historically it has been done this way. So, so nowadays we could design proteins without deep learning, but, uh, but the reason why we can design good proteins nowadays is actually because the algorithm that's used for full prediction is helping with the, with the design uh, process. Right, okay, yeah, so, so protein folding, um, a separate problem, but maybe helps the protein design work. We, we now had a, a couple of questions about some, some of your lab's work. We, we noticed that uh, you have a publication in, in preprint posted on, posted on BioArchive, at least, that attempted, yeah, the, the title is Protein Sequence Design with a Learned Potential. So I don't know if you could, in a you know, sort of brief way or, or somewhat non-technical way, explain the, the idea behind the paper and, and some of the um, key results. Uh, the, the, the paper was, was uh, originally motivated by this curiosity as to whether deep learning can help with the design process. So uh, if you look at the, the conventional way of designing proteins, uh, essentially, uh, as I mentioned, that there's this multicolor optimization, but there are these constraints that you have to place uh, in, in order for it to optimize. And those, those constraints essentially describe the interatomic interactions uh, of the entire system. And, and uh, those definitely guides all your simulations. The more accurate they are, the, the better it performs. So and that's also why, one of the reasons why currently you can build these more sophisticated proteins because these become way more uh, accurate. So in this work, uh, we try to see if we can just use deep learning to capture all that. And it turns out that, okay, so, so the, what are the findings? So the finding is that it turns out that this model actually works. And, and you know, sometimes uh, when, when people try to learn this type of energy model, it's just memorization. Like if you memorize every single possible configuration, you could potentially arrive at, at a good solution. But um, we don't think that we're doing memorization. Uh, I think is there's some generalizability uh, of the model that we built. But what's really interesting is that when we uh, uh, unleash this algorithm onto a few test cases, uh, we were able to get a crystal structure that actually agrees with our design model. And, and, it, and also one, one thing that's really uh, intriguing was that the solution that came out of the deep learning model our solution that the conventional method could not get. So, so that, that is essentially what's uh, really uh, interesting to us. Great, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it, it seems like um, back at the, at the beginning, you were talking about how one of the challenges is that these systems are so complex and deep learning can maybe allow us to avoid having to do the, that work of figuring out exactly how the complexity you know, works and exactly you know, all the, the different equations and instead just you know, the, the, the deep learning algorithm could learn it for us. So if, if, if that's, a, that's a good summary, that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly, that's what it is, yeah. To my knowledge, this is the, the first work that actually had the structural uh, work to come from it. Um, many other people have done uh, this type of approach, but then uh, usually the experiments are not quite uh, as uh, detailed. Wow, that was a lot of information. How would you sum up Professor Huang's description of protein design and the use of deep learning? I guess I would say that one, 
protein design and deep learning are really complicated. Two, if you are interested in protein design and deep learning, you should follow the work from Professor Huang's lab. And three, solving protein design would have a large impact on society. Regarding the impacts on society, what do you think about the potential negative effects of protein design? After all, I have heard that we can already engineer viruses to be more deadly. Yeah, I've heard that too. This is pretty concerning to me, especially given that we are on the tail end, hopefully, of a worldwide pandemic. What if someone were to bioengineer the virus to be more deadly or to make the vaccines less effective? In any event, Professor Huang seemed optimistic that advancements in protein design are coming in the near future. So now is the time to start thinking about the implications of a more widespread ability to design specific proteins. That's right. To do so, we asked Professor Huang what he thought about the potential negative impacts of advancements in protein design. Even though there are, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, these lots of ways in which advancing protein design can be really beneficial, do you think much about the ways in which it could be um, harmful to society? For instance, like bioengineering pandemics or something like that? Yeah, it's definitely doable. I, I would say it's definitely doable. So, so um, I, I don't know of instances where people actually do it, right? Because uh, I, they, they probably won't disclose it. <laughs> but but, but uh, I also think that uh, for people who currently know the craft, will probably not be so evil to try to create something that, that, that is harmful to the society. Because uh, yeah, I think a lot of the motivation for behind uh, the scientists are to actually save the world, right? to help uh, people. But it is definitely possible. So for example, I can already imagine, but don't do it. Uh, <laughs> if, is that you can just take the coronavirus and actually engineer a much, much tighter binder to its target, uh, for example, that right? you can actually make it more ambitious. It is possible. And you don't necessarily need protein design, uh, you know, modeling the structure to actually achieve it. This, uh, you could just simply doing wet lab experiment, doing some sort of uh, mix and matching, making Frank Frankenstein protein. You could alter the target specificity. You could actually make it, there are a lot of things you can do that are, that are bad, um, but, but I don't think anybody's trying to do it, at least not conscious, but, but there are bad things that you could do, yes. Do, do you feel worried at all? Like there's concern that like the accessibility of these technologies might be increasing and then that could lead to these things being possible by malicious actors. Um, I, I would say that the, um, well, a lot of these things that when people want to do bad things through, through this process, you don't need design, right? Uh, actually the, the enabling technology is probably molecular biology. Like I said, when, I, when you, uh, try to make this Frankenstein protein of some pieces that you glue, you know, uh, uh, from from different sources, and then perhaps uh, changing the potency or targeting ability. Uh, those you can already do. Like you don't even need design. Like design actually helps help you to make it better. But but currently people can just use molecular biology to splice things together. And and of course people are already worried about this type of thing with uh, uh, GM crops, for example. Uh, but but I, am I am I personally worried? Uh, I would say I'm concerned to a degree uh, because I would say with a with a, a genetic modified uh, species, I actually worry more about the environmental impact than than uh, about eating them. So, uh, but that's just my personal opinion. Then and and as for therapeutics or like creating toxic uh, agents. 
sometimes it could be really beneficial. Like for example, I mentioned that my lab uh, develops this new uh, cancer immunotherapy. We're actually taking a toxin to try to use that to kill tumors. Uh, and, and you know, this type of manipulation is, is always a double-edged sword, uh, like any type of uh, useful technology. So uh, I, I, am I worried? I, I would say that I'm not too worried. Our, our ability to design things are more like uh, uh, we're building bicycles right now, and then you're comparing something that's like a, a Ferrari. <laughs> so, so I think there's still a, a gap. So I'm not too worried, but but of course we're definitely moving into that direction to make things more more uh, sophisticated and potentially it could do harm. And, but but hopefully people don't do it. Cool. Uh, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, thank you for explaining that. And our last question is, what would you say to a Stanford student interested in protein design? Oh, I would say you should probably take my class to learn the software. And then uh, you can probably uh, try to, I mean, you don't necessarily have to learn the crap. Like, the, 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 sorry, you don't have to learn the software from a class. Because right? actually, a lot of the uh, software are well-documented. They're available. It's kind of hard to get into. Uh, but but if you really want to try it, I think people can figure it out. But in, in order to uh, think about design, I think the background that people would have to have is to, to really understand protein structures and uh, protein thermodynamics and how to, uh, if you're on a computational side, it, it, it would be very beneficial if you know how to at least write scripts, writing scripts, and, and understand all these optimization uh, uh, algorithms. So. So I would say that that's, that's a pretty good place to start. And then after that, it would just be that, as I mentioned at the very beginning, right? This problem is uh, you're dealing with is the complexity, but then sometimes there are very simple solutions, uh, but uh, you have to have the creativity to actually put the pieces together. So I would say uh, people interested in this area should probably read broadly as to like what proteins do, do, proteins do what? And then every time you read, out a, read about a protein, look at their structure and then start thinking about this uh, arrangement of the three-dimensional structure of amino acids and how, and, and how that is achieving this, these type of functionality. Once you have a very good understanding of that, I, I think most people can even just do design on like a visualization software uh, that, that that's, uh, you, you don't necessarily need really sophisticated uh, tools. This is because the, the, the advancement uh, in the last decade or so, even though the tools are becoming better, uh, but it is actually how you think about the problem that, that get us here. So That sounds great. Professor Huang, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was some great perspective about the potential impacts of protein design. After talking with Professor Huang, are you as excited as you were before? Absolutely. I see protein design as a breakthrough technology. Once we have it, so many medical advancements will come with it. And I think that deep learning is just a tool to finally crack this decades-old problem. What about you? I am definitely excited about the potential applications to diagnose and treat diseases. I must say that the potential to use protein design for bad intentions does concern me. I think we need strong protections to ensure the appropriate use of any new technologies. Definitely. And with that, I think we are ready to wrap up. Thank you very much again to Professor Huang. And to any Stanford students interested in learning more about protein design, we encourage you to take Professor Huang's class, as well as many other computational biology classes at Stanford. And there are also a lot of great classes about deep learning. For Stanford SciCast, this has been Jack Ryan, 
and Foster Birnbaum. Thank you very much for listening.